Are there monsters among us? Well, it turns out there are monsters among us, because not only are there weird cryptid creatures living among us, but there's people who would actually intentionally fake paranormal activity for profit. So there's different kinds of monsters out there, and we'll be talking about them all tonight on episode 472 of Spooky South Coast. It starts right now. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa. Science advisor, Matt Moniz, is, he's out and about on the road for work. And Stephanie Burke is up at the Legend Trips event at the Houghton Mansion that I could not be at tonight because I had prior commitments today. But we are here to talk with you about the paranormal, as we are each and every Saturday night. And we have a packed show for you tonight. We're going to start things off by talking to our friend Greg Newkirk of theweekandweird.com. We, uh, weekandweird.com, you know, catchy, catchy name. <laughs> wonder where they came up with that. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, but they do have that website, and of course, uh, and you know them from uh, the Traveling Museum of the Occult and the Paranormal. They are going to be, well, Greg will be joining us uh, in just a few moments. Matt's going to get him on the phone for us to talk about the story that they released on weekandweird.com this week. About a paranormal, about an effects company faking haunts in paranormal locations. So we'll find out more about that with Greg coming up in just a minute or two. And then later on in the show, we'll be joined by Linda Godfrey. You know her. You've heard her on the show before. She focuses on stories of strange monsters and just creepy, creepy stuff. She'll be joining us to talk about her new book, uh, which will be, you know, if you, if you haven't read any of her books, this is probably a great one to kind of kick things off with. Monsters Among Us, an exploration of otherworldly Bigfoots, wolfmen, portals, phantoms, and odd phenomena. Sounds like, you know, just regular, right before you go to bed reading for us. Uh, But we'll be talking with Linda about that coming up in just a moment. Uh, While Matt gets Greg on the phone, I will just say this. I know that I have been bashing American Horror Story. Over the last couple of seasons, I didn't even watch last season, but uh, I was very intrigued by this week's season premiere. If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's kind of a bit of a like a paranormal witness ripoff, but so far it's it's got my interest. So hopefully that holds out, and uh, hopefully they keep it going. See, it it always gets me interested, and then they lose me when they get into all the weird stuff, and you start seeing, like, leather-clad gimps walking down the hallway and all that kind of stuff. That's when it starts to lose. That's when it turns into a Ryan Murphy show for me, and that's when I start to to lose interest a little bit, but certainly uh, a good start to that. But, you know, that's that's fictional paranormal activity. That's fictional horror. And we know what to expect from fictional horror and fictional paranormal events. It's a different story when you're paying good money to go into a place and to, uh, is, is, is on there? When you're going into a place and you're expecting for everything to be on the up and up. The story broke this week on weekandweird.com. Greg Newkirk, 
Uh, and Dana, they run that website together. Uh, they do a fantastic job chronicling all things in the paranormal world, sometimes even the stories we don't want to hear about and talk about. And this one is one that it shocked the paranormal world. And we're going to bring Greg on right now. Or eh, it doesn't seem to be working, Matt. I can't bring him on. <laughs> Matt's going to fix that. He's a poor guy's going to run back and back from room to room uh, to be able to make this work. But this story, if you haven't seen it yet, go to weekendweird.com and you can read it in its entirety. But when I read it, I mean, I saw that Greg was, you know, asking some questions on on Facebook about it. But when I actually read the story, my jaw dropped, and I still have yet to pick it up. And Greg joins us on the line right now. Good evening, Greg. How are you? Hey, what's going on, man? Hey, great to talk to you again. It's it's been a while. I know. It's good to be back. Well, but, you know, we we talk all the time kind of online, but uh, we love having you on the show because you always bring a different perspective to things, and uh, you've been doing a great job with WeekandWeird.com. Oh, thanks, man. And when I saw this story, I I, got to tell you, my heart sank a little bit because... As somebody who runs paranormal events, and, and you being somebody who goes to paranormal events, uh, you know, who uh, works at paranormal events as a featured guest at a lot of these things, this is something that this news could completely change that end of what it is that we do. And it's a story about a Kentucky special effects company, or Kentucky special effects, is that like Kentucky Fried Chicken, that actually specializes in going into haunted locations and faking activity unknowingly to the people who are coming in and, and paying to be part of these these events that happen at these locations. Not good. So how Not did good. how did you hear about Because, you know, we're all working in this field. We're all dealing with the owners of these buildings all the time. And I've never, I, you know, there's been a few locations that have been accused of this on their own, but I've never heard anything about this. How did you even get tipped off to this to begin with? Uh Totally by accident, I was looking for, as you know, my wife, Dane, and I, we run the Traveling Museum of the Paranormal and the Occult, and Mm -hmm. it's something that we take to a lot of these different events. And the bigger it gets, the more we have to get, uh, like, new new rigging and and new new things to to stage all of the items and show all the items. So I was looking for someone who specializes in building the kind of uh, props that you see in haunted houses because we wanted to keep it with the theme. And so I was looking for people in our area, and we're in Cincinnati, and so I started to look in, you know, uh, uh, Cincinnati and in, in Louisville, Kentucky, and sure enough, this guy's in Louisville, and when I was looking at his webpage to see the kind of things that he built, I noticed that there was a, a, a part of his webpage that was dedicated to uh, real hauntings, and when I clicked on it and started to read all the things that this guy said he'd been doing, for for different uh, companies and private individuals, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was everything from faking things as mundane as orbs to making entire groups of people feel physically ill at the same time. That's it's just it's just incredible. And so locations uh, they they contact this company and they contract them to come in and to make it seem like there's actual paranormal phenomenon taking place, so that those who are paying money to come in and experience that will go home having said experience. Exactly. Uh, and he says that he's done it for some of the biggest locations uh, in the country. I'm assuming that you know, kind of. Off the record, he told you some of those locations. 
He, he didn't tell me outright, but he heavily implied a few of them. Uh, I emailed a couple of them and have not heard back. I, I don't know if that's if that's considered an admission of guilt or not. Uh, but but there's a few, and and they're ones that anyone who has any interest in the paranormal would would know of. And you know, you know, working in journalism, you know that a lot of times when you're seeking out comment for a story, it'll say, you know, uh, the weak and weird was not uh, put a call in, was not returned for comment. That could have meant that you placed the call five minutes before the story was posted. But I'm sure you actually did the due diligence and tried to give them the opportunity to to speak for this. And that's the great thing about being on the web too, is it can be updated at any time if any of them do get back to you. But I think you're right. Absolutely. I, I don't think you're going to hear from anybody that will come on, even saying off the record, yeah. Yeah, we've hired them because this has become such a big money maker for a lot of these places. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's it it's frustrating because on one hand, I can see I can see what the guy's doing, and you know, his whole point is if if an investigator is really worth you know their weight, they will be able to figure out that something's not right. And I agree with them. I think that that's true. I think that a seasoned investigator would first look for the reason and figure it out. But who it's really unfair to is to the the amateur investigators. But you know, on the same on the same token, some of these people are only going because they they want to have that experience happen. Right. Uh, so it, it it sucks because you know who who's who's really right and who's really wrong. Well, I mean, I could understand, and I'm sure that when he is doing these, and and you probably got into the intricacies with him of who actually attends some of these events, but I'm sure that he's not doing it when, you know, um, let, let's just throw out uh, Taps for example. You know, if if they were gonna, you know, the Taps home team, the the group that actually goes out and does the investigations apart from the TV show, you know that this is an organization that's made up of seasoned investigators with 20, 30 years experience. You know, you're not going to try to pull this off when they're coming in there. It's probably designed for when you have, you know, October 28th open ghost hunt night for $30 a head. It's probably those people that right. you're talking about, those who would not know better. Right. I think what his team actually does is they, they try and blend in with groups of people that have paid to be at this place. So, you know, you can have a couple of people who are there just for the thrill-seeking, and then you can have a couple who are like, oh, this is going to be our first ghost hunt, and they've got all of their equipment and everything together, and then you've got a couple of these guys in there. You just can't tell who's who. It's a scary thing because, you know, you really don't know. And the other side of that is people who are putting on these events, you know, me being somebody that comes in and contacts the location and says, I want to put on an event here to help you raise some money, you know, we could be falling victim to this just as much as the ticket buyers could be. Yeah, exactly. And that and that's the scary part. But I, I, I have a feeling that, I have a feeling that it's probably gone on more than people realize, and not just with him. Uh, you know, if, if an event uh, or if a, if a location is trying to have people in for an event and they want repeat business, they obviously want to have uh, activity that's happening. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I, I've heard rumblings too when I when I posted asking for people's opinions on, on, on a, uh, a business like this. There were a lot of people who inboxed me who told me that they're they're absolutely positive that it's happening. A lot of uh, kind of mid-name places. There were a couple big ones uh, that have nothing to do with this guy. That are, that are almost doing it in-house. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the thing is, you know, you see them do it, or, or you know, you hear rumblings that they're doing it. You figure to yourself, well, why pay them? We can just do it ourselves, and that's even scarier because then any 
place could start doing this. It, it wouldn't even have to be somebody where they would be a moneymaker for them. It could be as simple as, you know, the local heritage museum down the street could be pulling this stuff. Right. But you, you, I mean, you would hope that a place like a museum would be a bit more reputable than that. Eh, but hope, it, it but... just goes to show, <laughs> you would hope. But it goes to show, you know, the nature of, of, of having a good relationship with the people in, in this community and good relationships with each other. So you know that somebody's on the up and up when you plan something with them. And that's not always easy to do. One of the things that, that I started, my mind went to when I first saw this story was the fact that everybody that is involved in the paranormal, anybody that considers themselves part of this community, they always get up in arms, it seems, collectively, that a location that has reports of activity has some sort of obligation to the pursuit of the paranormal. They have some sort of responsibility to not do this kind of stuff. And as much as I would like that to be true, it's their place and they can do whatever they want. So if people want to fake this and sell tickets to a ghost a, a ghost hunt, a paranormal investigation night, and have this go on. There's really nothing that can, there's no nothing illegal going on. There's nothing uh no. you know, nothing that w- would cause uh, any kind of litigation. So they can do this and there's nothing that can be done to stop them. Well, there's one of the most common things I've heard since this article went up was about how you know, if my ghost hunting team found out that this was happening, we would sue this place. But the problem is, you would have to show some kind of a demonstrable loss. And we're a community that has gone to great lengths to set ourselves up as, uh, you know, uh, uh, nonprofits and say we don't charge for these things and we don't make any money. So showing a demonstrable loss is going to be hard. And the fact of the matter is, as long as these places don't promise anything other than access to the building and the possibility that you might run into some kind of spookiness, there's nothing you can do. I mean, you could take them to court, but you would you would be out a lot of money. And then the other, other thing is you'd probably only be able to nail them in small claims court at, at the most, and that is a slim possibility. And then the most you're going to get is whatever, you know, triple damages. or And we're talking about events that, you know, you might make four or $500 profit when all is said and done. Exactly. So it's it's not exactly. like, yeah, it's not even going to be worth the, the time of actually paying for the process of going through litigation. So I wouldn't be surprised because of that if we start seeing this a little bit more, I hate to say. I mean, one of the things that I think is probably just good practice is anybody who wants to run an event should uh, contract with the place with a physical contract, guaranteeing that none of this stuff will go on. And sure, some places might get insulted the first time they read it, but you then explain to them, hey, it's it's been happening. Weak and weird broke the story. It's actually been going on. You know, then they might say, okay, and, and be willing to let that go. But that doesn't really protect the individual ticket buyer who is just going to go and, and buy a Saturday night ghost hunt ticket at their local, you know, uh, somewhat famous haunt. But at least that's going to protect the uh, event organizer in the event that any of that stuff actually does go on. And they can say, well, here, look at this. It's in the contract. I wanted nothing to do with this, so this doesn't reflect on me. And then they can recoup any of their losses. But, I mean, the downside is, though, is that once it, once the consumer is out there having it happen to them, then it just becomes a stain on everybody. And the fact that this is even happening right. is going to make people weary of any type of event that's being put on now, especially one that's charging money. Oh yeah, and I, and I feel really bad for for both the event event planners that have always been on the up and up, 
and for the locations that have always been on the up and up. Because now they're both going to suffer from people going, well, I've heard rumors that this place might be like this. And even a, just a rumor is going to be enough to kill business. I mean, we've seen it happen with individuals where, you know, a certain person working in, in the paranormal might get accused of fakery. And whether it's true or not, you know, it all comes down to the to the drama that happens between different cliques of people. But uh, this rumor gets out, and then everybody that works with that person carries that little bit of a smudge on their reputation from being in close proximity to that person. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this, this is just going to be another one of those instances where, you know, my my hope is this guy who runs the uh, the business. I mean, he def- he said that he's done over two dozen. I don't know if if I totally believe that. Uh, you know, again, there's no way for me to get absolute proof because he wouldn't come straight out and tell me what these places were, and I can't get any of these places that I, I think he might have been talking about to email me back. So my hope is that he's exaggerating just to kind of try and get a rise out of people. But you never know. Could he be completely fabricating the entire thing? He could, but he, he, he definitely sounded like he had done it a few times. Uh, some, of the, some of the techniques that he was, was alluding to, they sounded, I don't know, I don't know. I could see them working. Um, and, I mean, I've heard so many stories. I'm sure you've heard stories, too, of, of places that have... You know, subwoofers in a in the right wall, and things like that. I mean, it's it's not a, a leap of the imagination to think that he's he's telling the truth. I mean, also, I mean, it becomes part of our investigation process when we go into one of these places that we've heard these stories. So that's when something happens. That's the first thing that we're looking for. We're you know we're we're looking for an oddly placed mirror that will cause a, a weird light reflection, or we're looking for those speakers that are you know playing something in infrasound. We know enough now from hearing these stories, which I suppose now this will at least make people a little bit more vigilant when they're out at locations to to kind of take everything that's happening and try to break it down and debunk it a little bit more before they chalk it up as being paranormal. Well, way, way to find the silver lining, man. <laughs> there has to be one somewhere. The only silver lining apparently is in this guy's pocket because uh, I'm sure that if there are locations out there that are looking to make a buck, now they're thinking to themselves, oh, wait a minute, we can have this guy come in and really build up that aspect of our of our tourism, which I also think, by the way, is something that's really overblown. We've been talking about it here on the show for a long time, that this is another avenue for these places to explore, bringing people in and looking into the paranormal as part of their uh, revenue generating. But the problem is, is right. we, we love doing this, so we look at it as being a big moneymaker. For a lot of these places, it's just kind of a, a little blip on the radar of what they need to raise. So why not take a chance like this? That's that's kind of the way they're looking at it. Oh, well, I, um, I, I talked to the guy uh, who runs the Belvoir Winery, and he said, you know, people think that we're just rolling in dough because we do these events. And he said, but really, we break even on them. And the reason that we even do the events to begin with is this place has so many reputations that if we didn't, kids would continue to break in. And that's a huge liability for us and will result in, in worse than breaking even in the end, at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So they almost feel like they're obligated to do this because it provides a safe alternative to kids looking to get their kicks uh, by breaking in. 
Is it sick and twisted that I'm thinking in my head, like, where can we go that we can hire this guy to come in and we can bring in some of the best, uh, you know, we'll get the TV investigators, we'll get the best of the bunch, and we'll have them come in and see if they can't figure out what's going on. You know, it could be candid camera paranormal. <laughs> well, well, see, the caveat there is he did say explicitly he he does a lot of work, and if he if he is sh- not sure, not a hundred percent positive, he can get away with it. He won't do the job. Ah. And he says there's been there's been a few he's turned down. Well, you know we can't we can't uh, we can never invite Tenny to that because it'll just turn into Tenny giving the guy more ideas of how to fake stuff. <laughs> he just walk in and you know point out, oh, that's that's happening there and that's happening there. Yeah, he's like, I and, can. Uh, I- you should have done th- you should have right. done this instead. Instead of using the fishing line, use dental floss. It, it's it's far less you know conspicuous <laughs> in flashlight. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I, uh, uh, let everybody know, of course, we know that you're coming up this way. Uh, you're coming to New England uh, in November as part of uh, Amy Bruni's Strange Escapes event at the Mount Washington Hotel. Uh, but uh, where else yeah. can where else can we go out and see the traveling museum in, in the coming weeks and months? Uh, we have uh, an event that we just announced. Uh, it's going to be a kind of a fun little three-night small intimate event in uh, Waverly, New York. And uh, we'll be doing something we haven't really done much before. We'll actually be giving a presentation on some of the, the weirdest evidence that we've collected uh, from some of the objects here at, at our home base. Uh, so we've got that coming up. Um, uh, obviously, we've got the Mount Washington coming up. We will be at Mackinac Island in the UP in October next month. And uh, then we'll, I mean, if anybody wants to know where we're going to be, they can always go to paramuseum.com and uh, just check out, visit the museum, and all of the dates are there. And that's where you have the live video feeds too, right? Yeah, we've got a live video feed. It's up 24-7. There's a chat room there. We try and switch out the objects. Uh, we'll have a different object every week, and we do live EVP sessions and things like that. So people in the chat room can ask questions and we do. We try and keep that as interactive as possible. And if I'm not, if I'm not incorrect, we'll be uh, spending some time on the high seas together next year as well. We will be disappearing into the Bermuda Triangle together. I couldn't think of a better bunch of people to do it with. It, absolutely, what a way to go! And I'm the one that gets to uh, spend all the time in the uh, cabin with Tenny. So he's he's like my permanent roommate. So <laughs> get, be prepared for a lot of 3 a.m. meals at the uh, at the all night restaurant on the ship. Oh man, you're speaking right to my heart. It's believe I'm still trying to catch up on the sleep from last May, but I wouldn't I wouldn't trade a minute of it. It was so great. Well, we'll, we'll try and make it even more tiring next time around. Excellent. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, thank you, Greg, for joining us. Thank you for bringing the story to everybody's attention, and uh, we're interested to see where it goes in the future. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. All right. Have a great night. Take care. Take care. That is Greg Newkirk. You can check out weekendweird.com, paramuseum.com for all the information about them. We're going to take a break. When we come back on the other side, we'll be joined by Linda Godfrey to talk about her new book, Monsters Among Us. And we'll find out some of these strange monsters and what exactly we could be talking about when we're talking about Monsters Among Us. Is it, you know, is it the traditional monsters that we've always heard about, the traditional cryptids, or is there something even more weird and twisted out there? We'll find out about all that and more coming up in just a bit. Stay tuned for more Spooky South Coast broadcasting live on WBSM, rebroadcast on the Dark Matter Radio Network, and as always on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. Back in a bit.
South Coast, Tim Weisberg, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa. Thank you to DJ 4AM for the beats that we lay down, coming in and out of commercials. And uh, also, Matt, I know that you have put out the call for people who want to submit original music for not only being played on the show as bumper music, but you've been running music uh, on the YouTube stream on Spooky TV around the show as well. Right, we started playing um, some music that uh, was submitted because we got uh, quite a number of uh, submissions. And um, you people are welcome to... Uh, I don't mean you people, but... <laughs> Folks, people, people right. who want to the, contribute. The, the fans of Spooky South Coast who are willing to uh, lay down some beats, some tracks, album, drop an album on us, whatever. We'll, uh, we'll play before the show, maybe sometimes after. Maybe sometimes yeah. during. Yeah. So just the only key is we want it to be unlicensed music right? so that there's no you know, right. issues. So, so if there's any um, copyrighted samples that you use maybe for movies and stuff, that might not be... Um, it might not be okay to use. Yeah, because um, being on YouTube, sometimes we get blocked in certain countries from copyright laws and stuff if we use that stuff. So. Submit it anyway, and then like we'll review it. And then. See and how can they submit it if they want to do so? Um, they can... Uh, I just, uh, just, just spooky find, crew? Yeah, just either find us on Facebook. I, I feel like um, finding us on Facebook is the most uh, effective way. Okay. So or, yep. or Twitter. Go to the Spooky South Twitter. Coast page on Facebook. You can uh, follow Spooky SC on Twitter. We're also on Instagram at Spooky underscore South Coast. So all these different ways to get a hold of us. Let us know if you have some music you want to contribute for use on the show. We're happy to use it, happy to feature you, and we'll make sure we give mentions out there. It's not like we just steal your music and, and don't give you any credit. Matt always puts uh, all the information oh, right. up on the screen there for you. So, All right, well, let's get into the really strange part of tonight's discussion as if it wasn't already strange enough. Uh, joining us, we have author, investigator, and artist Linda Godfrey. She's the author of more than 17 books on strange creatures, phenomena, and people. She's a frequent guest on national TV and radio shows, including Monster Quest, Lost Tapes, Monsters and Mysteries, Sean Hannity's America, Inside Edition, Coast to Coast AM, Public Radio, and many, many more. Uh, she also is... Uh, like me, you know, she she got her start with doing this kind of stuff in journalism. And I got to say, Linda, I always have a, a soft spot in my heart for the people who actually chased after these topics, not because they wanted to write a book about them and not because they wanted to answer their own questions, but we get those Halloween time assignments from the editor saying, who wants to tackle this weird story? And uh, it seems like you're of the same vein as me. You probably had your hand up first. <laughs> Uh, something like that. It was um, just, you know, a, a hint that came to me from somebody, and I looked into it, and I found out that our county animal control officer had a file folder, a manila file folder marked werewolf, which I saw with my own eyes. When you have a county official with a file folder marked werewolf, that's news. Yeah, I would say so, yeah. Yeah, so, so and it just, uh, no one had any idea that, this story would have the legs that it has displayed over 24 years now. And, of course, that being, you know, the, the Beast of Bray Road that you've written about in the past, that being kind of what, what hooked you into all of this, right? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I had had interest in other um, interesting sorts of topics. You know, I'd read books about Bigfoot, and uh, some. The, my dad always had those men's hunting magazines with the articles by Ivan Sanderson in them, you know, on the some of the original Bigfoot sightings, and so I was aware of it. But I never thought anything about things that looked like werewolves. I mean, to me, that was just Hollywood or fairy tales. 
something like that. So when people from my own hometown were saying that they were seeing what looked like a werewolf, and most of these people just didn't seem like they were hoaxers. I couldn't see any advantage that they had. They were moreover leaving their names and phone numbers with the uh, local authorities, which hoaxers I didn't think would do, you know, and um, it just intrigued me. I wanted to know what it was and what what they were looking for, and and uh, it was it wasn't a Halloween um, type story, but it was um, that kind of dead space over New Year's Eve. That's oh. that's when it appeared. So it was um, the end of December and into early January and uh, 1991, 92, and we were just. I think my other article for that paper was a, a scintillating story about the elderly couple that played the piano at the local nursing home. <laughs> Seriously, that's what it was. <laughs> and they put the New Year's baby on the cover. This wasn't even the cover story. Well, I was going to say, one of those stories that you wrote ended up turning into a book and a career, and I, I don't think it was the piano-playing couple. But uh, I, I, I can understand, though, too, that for a lot of people who want to come forward with having an encounter with something strange and unusual, uh, there's got to be something about when a, a journalist contacts them to want to talk about something like a, a, a creature such as this, because, you know, I can tell, I can call up a reporter and say, I saw a ghost. I can call up a reporter and say, I was abducted by a UFO. Mm-hmm. And really, most reporters just want to kind of get your account if they even give you any credence at all. But when you're talking about something that was a physical creature, that opens up a whole new door of investigation and a whole new level of scrutiny right. for the person who might be asking the questions. Right, because it was doing things like, I mean, it was being seen eating roadkill. It scratched a couple of people's cars. It was chasing cars, um, you know, chasing kids that were out sledding. And uh, some of those kids, one of my own uh, sons knew very well and, and told me he was sure he wasn't lying. You know, so it was out there. It was doing things. And I actually felt a responsibility to um, let people know that this thing was out there and to try and find out if it was something dangerous. You know, because um, the local authorities were giving really ridiculous explanations, such as, well, it was probably a coyote that leaped up for some reason and was caught just momentarily in the headlights so that it looked like it was five and a half to six feet tall and then fell back down again. You know, but, you know, that, that's not what people were describing at all. So, you know, and, and then I also had the thought, even if it did turn out to be something really explainable, it sounded like folklore in the making, you know, and I thought, well, how often do you get a chance to be in on the ground floor of an honest-to-goodness folktale? So even if it was that, I thought that it deserved to be written about and, and recorded at least, and these people interviewed. And, um, you know, when I did talk to them, they just didn't, they did not seem like liars. They, they were scared yet, many of them. Um, some just didn't even want to talk about it. So, uh, you know, I, and here we are 24 years later, and, um, you know, it's really become known worldwide, much to my surprise. Well, I think it's really interesting that you took the approach of what, you know, the hipster journalists of today would call the meta 
approach to the story that, you know, even if there was nothing mm-hmm. to these sightings, the fact that the story could have been the fact that people were having these sightings. And so the, the actual event becomes as newsworthy as what it might be that they're actually seeing. And I think that's lost on a lot of people, especially when it comes to these creature sightings. Yeah. Is who cares whether sometimes whether or not there actually is a, a creature. Sure, you'd like to be able to, to prove that that's the case. But the fact that all these people are reporting it. Right. It's just as interesting to me if there isn't anything there and they're also exactly. having these experiences. Yes. It, I, thank you very much. Yeah, because that is really what has kept me going. You know, there is still this mystery. If there's nothing, why are people all over the United States, Canada, South America, and really the world? I mean, I started getting letters from other people, um, you know, within weeks, as soon as it went out on AP, um, I remember I got something from the Virgin Islands saying they saw it there. You know, it was just um, all over the United States and, and everywhere. And why are all these people seeing this particular-looking creature? You know, it, it just, um, you know, it's like it's a condition of, of the, the human consciousness or something. And, and that that I still find a great mystery. We will, you know, later on in the the program, we'll get into the idea of what some of these these creatures could be. Mm-hmm. But certainly, just documenting and chronicling the experiences people are having with one creature is going to start to lend itself to hearing reports of other things. And, you know, eventually you're chasing after this beast of Bray Road and, and following up on the story, and then you hear about something else that pulls you in another direction. Right. Did you kind of become the person that everybody went to with their monster stories? Um, yeah, I mean, especially, I, I think that there were already, um, other formats set up for people reporting Bigfoot, you know, and, and some of the other things. However, um, people did start coming to me right from the get-go with stories about Bigfoot, giant birds, um, you know, other really strange-sounding things. So, um, while I was, I was mainly focusing on what I like to call the unknown upright canine, which drives my editors crazy because it's not a sexy title like werewolf, but the the other things were coming into me as well, and it just seemed that um, you know the the late great investigator John Keel was right, and where you get one type of creature, you often have others, you know, and so he um, invented this term that he called window areas, where, where it's like there's some window from somewhere that all these things are coming through. And, of course, we live in one right here with the the Bridgewater Triangle. Mm-hmm. And these window areas also seem to be, it's not just, you know, these creatures. It's all different types of phenomena. Right. It's all different types of different uh, afflictions on the human condition as well. Right, yeah. You get UFOs, you get strange lights, um, you get orbs of all types and descriptions, um, you know, all, all kinds of odd things. So, and in fact, I've written a book on that actual topic. My next one coming out in October is about just that very thing. Wow. Ah, so we have you kind of right in the middle of promoting one book and on the verge of the next one coming out. That's... <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll be out soon, in October 11th. Is there, uh, but when you are kind of looking into these areas, uh, is there also, in the back of your mind, do you consider that there might be some sort of kind of, I don't want to say mundane, because obviously it wouldn't be mundane mm-hmm. if it's causing this type of stuff to happen, but that there could be something that's actually very explainable that causes all these inexplicable things to happen. Well, you know, I try to. I mean, I really do keep it in mind that science, our hum- human science, continually reinvents itself and comes up with 
ways to detect things that we never dreamed um, we could detect before, you know. And a lot of people will say, I still hear this all the time, people say, well, I only believe it if I can see it, smell it, or hear it. Well, excuse me, but there's an awful lot in the light spectrum, in the audio spectrum, and um, who knows what other spectrums that we know for sure due to our instrumentation exists, but that, um, you know, we don't hear. We don't hear dog whistles, yet dogs hear them. You know, we, we don't see everything on the light spectrum, but, um, you know, we know that these other things, are, wavelengths are there So from, from our instrumentation. And who knows what we are going to come up with in the future that will show how much more there is that we never dreamed of. Well, you mentioned, you know, every, people have their different definitions of belief, and people have different criteria of what they need to believe. For a lot of people, it's it's a one-on-one encounter. It's an actual experience. For a lot of people, it's just enough other people having an experience. At what point did you, or or maybe, you know, you still haven't made up your mind, or what, but at what point did you believe that these people believed what happened to them? Well, I believe that from very early on because um, so many of the witnesses, for one thing, there was a really widespread of demographics, you know, racially, um, age-wise, men, women, blue-collar, white-collar. It was just a a very widespread group, and most of them were just ordinary people going about their business when, you know, they weren't out looking for anything weird. They weren't out ghost hunting or anything like that. And I, again, not professing to know what it was, I did believe that they saw something, and uh, it was only uh, two years after after my first book on the topic came out that um, we were a, a subject for um, one of the episodes of Monster Quest, um, the American Werewolf mm-hmm. episode that was based on my hunting the American Werewolf. And they had me bring in as many um, area witnesses as I could get to come to a certain place on one day. I think we had seven or eight of them. They, there were too many that they could, could even fit them all on the show. Every single one of them came up with no deception intended, and they had a state. They had brought in a state-of-the-art machine with a true expert from the Minneapolis area um, to administer and interpret these tests. And the producers told me there were a couple of the people they were sure were going to show up that they were just, you know, making it up or something. But everybody came out with flying colors. So, you know, and and I think that really most of the people who contact me, every once in a while there's somebody that, um, you know, I think or suspect or that they show themselves to be uh, trying to put one over on me. But it's really, there's a very small number of people who really think that's a cool thing or that would, you know, get up the nerve to try it or that or that do try it. You know, I, it's it, most people, I believe, who report these things to me are sincere and honest that they believe they saw what they're telling me about well so that kind of lends itself to my next question which you know we only have a few moments left before the news and i always like to ask the loaded questions when we're up against the clock you know (laughs) (laughs) but was their belief and and the fact that they believe so strongly and that you believe their belief was that enough to make you be convinced that there was actually a creature out there worth worth looking into and worth chasing after um yes but i didn't know what it was and i still don't really claim to 100 percent you know i had better ideas perhaps but um it made me very intrigued and interested to find out what all these people actually were seeing was there ever any point where you know you questioned 
you know, if there actually was a, a creature, if there actually was going to be, you know, kind of the the whatever it was that was out there, that there would be some sort of physical representation of what these people were seeing? Well, what I started thinking right very, very early was that perhaps there was more than one answer, that some people were seeing one thing, other people were seeing another thing, and I think that still may be true. Although, you know, sometimes with these with these different types of experiences that people have, you know, there's there's a lot of similarities that are between them, but there's a lot of very personal effects that happen as a result of this. There's a lot of very every person kind of takes takes this in and processes it differently. Were you seeing any kind of commonalities? I know that you said you know there was a very diverse in, in terms of the witnesses, but was there ever any commonalities in the experience itself where, you know, maybe everybody reported feeling a particular way when when they saw it or maybe everybody reported, you know, smelling a particular smell? Was there something that kind of seemed to carry through from one report to another? Well, there were several really glaring things. Um apparent again right from the get-go. One was that even when people felt that they were being directly threatened, maybe they were um outdoors um, you know, unarmed when they encountered it, or they were outside their car and had to get back in their car, they would say, you know, they felt like it could have gotten them, but at the last second it ran off into the cornfield or the trees or whatever there was there. And that still happens again and again and again and again and again. It's like the major, the, the major modus operandi of, of the creature. The other thing is that people report time after time that the thing has sort of an attitude, that it sneers or leers at them, hmm. and that they feel it's looking at them and saying, in, not, in, not in the King's English, but um, giving them the impression that it could get them if they wanted to, or um, they'll interpret it as, uh, one lady said, it, I believed it was letting me know that if I told anyone, it would come and find me, um, that kind of thing. You know, it's this sort of superiority over you. And and also, it seems like there's sort of the intent to scare people, and then they run away. Hmm. It seems like that's almost their major um, directive when when encountering humans. So you would think that there seems to be some kind of a, a higher level of intelligence with this creature. Yes, and I also hear that from people too. They'll say, you know, it. I, I made eye contact, and I felt like this was something that was self-aware, that was more intelligent than just say if you run up against a wolf or a bear, which are very intelligent animals, very much so than most people give them credit for. But people felt that this thing was just one step beyond. Hmm. See, that's that's very intriguing to me because, you know, we often report these uh, sightings and we say, you know, they, they seem to find a way to avoid people. Uh, but it also seems that they find a way to need to find people when they want to and when they right. have a particular message or, or a point they want to get across. Right. In some cases, it's almost like they allow themselves to be seen. And then uh, and people will sometimes, too, say, well, I felt like it was angry that I saw it. Um, a few times they've reported it looking at them as if it was sick and needing help. And maybe I have to think, well, maybe it was, you know, trying to lure them to it. <laughs> right, or exactly, like, yeah. Poor doggy. You know, and there was actually one incident where some uh, young women were shopping near a mall in Brookfield, Wisconsin, near Milwaukee, and saw what they thought was a lonely dog on a highway cloverleaf, and they actually pulled over on the cloverleaf and went to run and try and get the dog to come in their car, and then it stood up. No. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, they, they do seem to, and I've had other 
um, encounters where they do seem to be trying to lure people outdoors. So you, you don't, it, you know, and that's just not a normal animal. I mean, there are just things, even when you just look, for, there's no lights or UFOs, they're doing these weird behavioral things. Hmm. Well, we can talk uh, more about that and some other strange things coming up in the next hour. Uh, we are going to take a break in a moment for the news. When we come back on the other side, we'll talk more with Linda Godfrey about her new book, Monsters Among Us. We'll also take your calls for Linda at 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. You can also text them to us uh, as well. Uh, you can shoot them to us on Twitter at SpookySC, or just use the hashtag SpookyLive when discussing the show. And you can also jump into the chat room on our YouTube stream, which is happening right now on SpookySouthCoast.com. So lots of different ways to check out the show, lots of different ways to get involved with the show. We hope that you will as we are coming up on the news. We'll be back again, as I said, with another hour to discuss things with Linda. We'll also let you know at the beginning of the next hour about one new Spooky South Coast event we have coming up in the next few weeks, and there's another possible one that I haven't heard confirmation yet of today, but the word should be coming down any minute that we'll be doing this other event, so I can kind of give a little bit of a teaser about that, but hey, it's Halloween season, people are calling, they're saying, Tim, can we get something on the books, can we have a little event to to get things going and to help us out while people are interested, and I can't say no. If you want me to come talk about ghosts, I will do so. And I will be doing that this coming Tuesday night as well. So I'll let you know on the other side where you can come and hear that as well. So stay tuned. More Spooky South Coast coming up in just a few moments here on WBSM. Welcome back. Our number two of Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa. We are broadcasting live on WBSM, or rebroadcasting on the Dark Matter Radio Network, if you're listening to the show later, in which case, we just time-traveled. Not the time-travelers who are actually the fans of the Dark Matter Network, (laughs) who pay for the monthly subscription, but... You know, just travelers in time. Right. That's, and that's a great network, by the way. It really is. Really is. We Keith, a, Keith does a fantastic job filling it up with great programming. Right. We get a, uh, recently, at least, we've we've gotten quite a bit of emails. And um, thank you to everybody. Yeah. yeah. We want of, everybody to new emails. new followers and things like that on YouTube. Let us know that you listen to the show. Let us know how and where and where you're from. Uh, just shoot us an email, Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com, or give us a shout out on Twitter at SpookySC. Lots of different ways to to get a hold of us during the course of the week. Uh, speaking of during the week and. I did get a question, by the way, Matt, in the chat room during yes. the news. Somebody said, that's a real Coke behind Tim on the desk. And yes, it is. It's a two-liter bottle. And sometimes you will actually see me drinking out of the two-liter bottle. I do not drink an entire two-liter bottle of soda during the show. No, no. I usually just buy one because it's cheaper. It's, I'm frugal. it's more economical. I'm frugal. It really it's is. like a dollar eighty for the 20-ounce. Right. And it's like a dollar ninety-eight for the... For the two liter, where I where we buy it here in the plaza, so I do that, and then I take the rest home and and drink it later. So, you know, I just want to clarify that so nobody thinks I'm totally like all hopped up on Coca Cola tonight. <laughs> tonight we are not. Tonight we are hopped. Tonight's show is brought to you not by sponsorship in any way, but just by the fact that we have chugged the entire bottle of Gosling's ginger beer. 
which, don't worry, it's not real beer. But somebody made the comment, they saw me oh. sipping out of this cup on Spooky TV. So they saw me sipping out of it, and they thought that we were drinking pina coladas. Because it's in the little Dixie cup, and it's yellow. But it's Gosling's ginger mm. beer. It's delicious. So Yes, it is. Big it's, fan of it. It's really good and refreshing and, and great for during the show. We're going to get right back into the discussion with tonight's guest, Linda Godfrey, in just a moment. Just want to let everybody know about a couple things coming up. First of all, this Tuesday, uh, for anybody local, I will be at the New Bedford Library in the main branch giving a presentation called Ghosts of the South Coast. It's based on my first book. And basically, I'm going to take people on a little, a little, uh, paranormal journey across the South Coast, all while sitting in the library. We're going to check out the true stories of some of the most famous haunts across the area, including the Faring Tavern in Wareham, uh, Fort Tabor, Fort Rodman in New Bedford, which you just saw on Ghost Hunters last week, uh, and also the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast will be featured in that, as well as some other little smaller stories. It's free of charge. Refreshments will be served. So come on out to the main branch of the New Bedford Public Library Tuesday night at 7 o'clock to come hear me talk about Ghosts of the South Coast. And then we also announced, speaking of Fort Tabor and Fort Fort Rodman and Ghost Hunters, we just announced this week, just a few days ago, that we will be returning. There will be a spooky South Coast paranormal investigation night of Fort Tabor, Fort Rodman on October 29th. That's just a little over a month away. Come on out and check it out with us. We will investigate all the different batteries and we'll investigate the fort itself and the military museum. All happening on October 29th. Tickets are $99. They are available on SpookySouthCoast.com. Just go to our website, and you'll see the little event link on the side, and you'll see the calendar. It's on there as well. And you can just click right on that and purchase your tickets right through there. And it's going to be a great night. We're going to give you, you know, food. We're going to give you snacks, drinks. We're going to give you presentations, and we're going to give you full access to, well, mostly full access because we got to watch out for safety, but to the Fort Tabor, Fort Rodman entire park. We will have it for the whole night, October 29th. If you've ever wanted to check it out legally, because you're not supposed to go all around there and poking your head around and crawling into things at night, we will have unfettered access, and you can come and join us on October 29th. Get your tickets now by going to SpookySouthCoast.com and uh, get them now because... There may be another event coming down the pike as well for the following weekend. Not there, but somewhere else. And let's just say it'll be our first investigation, I think, within the Bridgewater Triangle. So you don't want to miss that. Well, I mean, I think a lot of this area is within the Bridgewater Triangle, but in Bridgewater proper. So hopefully once all the details come together for that, basically we're just waiting on a committee to give the approval. They called us. They asked us if we could do it. Of course, we're happy to, but we just got to wait for the committee to give us final approval, and then we can announce that event. So stay tuned to our Facebook, to our Twitter. We'll have all that coming up probably in the next day or two. We'll have it up there. And really, you can have all your Halloween fun on the first, on the Saturday right before and the Saturday right after. Sounds like a plan to me. So come and join us for those events and help raise money for these historic places. All right, let's get back into the discussion with tonight's guest, Linda Godfrey. Of course, we are talking about her new book, Monsters Among Us, and you can check out her website as well. We've been putting it up on our social media feeds. Uh, You can go to her site, which is uh, you can both find her on Twitter, at Linda Godfrey, 
And you can also go to her actual site, which is lindagodfrey.com, if you want to follow along with some of the different topics we are talking about tonight and also to pick up some of her books. So, Linda, we will go back into the discussion we were having uh, before the news where we were talking about, you know, in particular, the Beast of Bray Road, the the kind of the uh, the creature that got you hooked into this and the creature that kind of made made your name for you 24 years ago. Mm-hmm. Is that creature still being cited today? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, and again, not just on this little road called Bray Road outside of Elkhorn, Wisconsin, but all over, you know, all over this continent, Europe, um, you know, you name it. Um, and they're, they all look pretty much like um, members of a normal wolf pack. The variations in color are what you'd expect. They range from like a, a black to shaggy brown to uh, to gray. And they're normally described as having a head like a wolf or a German shepherd. Once in a while, someone will say, well, it had a, a face more like a boxer, you know, where the, the snout was um, pushed in a little bit. And, and if these are wolf-dog hybrids, um, which my, my original mundane, if you will, explanation was that perhaps there were certain numbers of wolves or wolf-dog hybrids around the world that had found it advantageous to walk on their hind legs, you know, because of their habitat or, or some other reason. And, you know, there was some natural selection for the, the ones with longer or bigger paws that could balance a little better because that is the one difference. Most of these appear fully canine, except people will say, well, it had sort of longer paws, you know, so that it almost looked like fingers, but it was still a paw with a claw just just bigger, but there was no opposable thumb, you know, and that seems to be the only real difference. And it seems to me that would be an easy, uh, comparatively easy thing for something like natural selection to work with because it could only, it could not only balance easier, it would be able to use the forelimbs to carry things, which indeed many eyewitnesses have seen it doing, you know, mm. carrying part of a deer slung over its shoulder or hanging on to, you know, a, a dead raccoon or some or even um, using those longer paws to bring water up to uh, to lap from um, from their their paws, which is not how most canines drink. You know, if you've got anybody who has a dog knows they put their head down on the dish and lap lap lap. My little dog even has a, a, a rhythm to it. He'll he'll lap like three times and then stop and then three times and then stop. You know, they they're sort of they all have their own little patterns. But this is a, a really unusual thing to see. Um, for witnesses to see a canine putting its paws together, dipping water, and then uh, licking the water out of their paws. And, and certainly, even if that was just a circumstance of natural selection, that's still pretty newsworthy because it's not yes. like this is something that's been, you know, proven zoologically yet. No, it has not. And you know, I talk to authorities whenever I get a chance to. I talk to wolf experts and. Uh, I even talked to Ralph Peterson, who for many years has managed the uh, wolf study up in uh, northern Michigan, where they had, they've had wolves out on an isolated island and had a really great, they were able to collar them and fly over them all the time with helicopters. And I said, have you ever seen any members of that wolf pack standing up, running on their hind legs, or doing anything like that? And he said, no, I've never found one that did, which makes these things that, do this behavior in front of witnesses even more mysterious. You know, and I've looked at it from the angle of perhaps 
deformed hip bones or back bones or, you know, all different, you know, just making my brain to come up with these things. And I've never been able to get any rational, normal, understandable med, uh, medical reason that these creatures, um, you know, or, or even any other type of reason that a scientist could see and, and affirm as to why they would run on their hind legs. Well, I can tell you in my limited expertise that it is entirely possible for this to happen because I saw just today on Facebook a video of a cat that gets oh, yeah. really excited and stands on two legs and holds his arm yep. up in the air while he walks around. Any mammal can do it. Um, dogs, there's a great, one of my favorites is there's a merengue dancing dog that you can see on YouTube. There's another wonderful one of this bear who had um, lost a forelimb and both its paws looked injured like it was in a trap or something and it runs just beautifully um you know they can do it it's not a supernatural act it's just that out in the wild um i don't have any documentate scientific documentations of any of them doing it unless they're motivated by injury or human training to do it you know in other words there aren't any scientists who are collaring and studying wolf packs that run in their hind legs they just don't come across it from what they tell me we are. We do keep getting a question in the chat room from uh, Corey, who is uh, also chases after these type of creatures, also researches uh, strange creatures as well, and wants to know uh, what your opinion is of the Gables film, if you're familiar with that. The Gables film? Yes. It was totally proven a hoax. Um, there was a, a really good Monster Quest expose episode done on it. I was involved in it. I went there to Michigan. I visited the, the filmmaker myself. I saw all of his 70s um, snowmobiles and his 70s camera gear. I have my own photographs of it. I saw the, um, the expanding foam that he used to simulate guts hanging out of the supposed victim. Um, I, we have an on-camera confession from the DJ who took the, the original raw film and made it into something, edited it so that um, it looked like it was a lot more mysterious than it was. He took out the spoilers that the original filmmaker had left in it. All that has been admitted and proven, and there's absolutely no doubt that it was a complete hoax. It was done um, so that they could sell more uh, CD records or CDs of this particular um, song or or legend about the dog man. And speaking of the dog man, uh, there was a a question in the chat room from Raven wants to know about uh, what the Native Americans say about these creatures going back even before you know the more modern reports that that you've been chronicling. Right, and that's a great question. And I always uh, preface this by saying there is no Native American one monolithic belief because these are different peoples, different tribes. Uh, many of them have different ethnic backgrounds from one another, and they have different cultural. Um, stories about them and beliefs, but the ones I have spoken to personally, and I have interviewed um, some different um, tribal elders, and and even one um, one Ho Chunk elder who is also an anthropologist, very interested in in this topic. And what they tell me um, kind of generally boils down to the fact that they believe that the Dogmen and the Bigfoot are both. Um, at least part spirit creatures, and that they were originally, they were completely spirit creatures, but they learned to come here, they found the openings between the worlds, and that they can still go back and forth between them um, when they find it necessary or expedient. 
to do so. And that is why that sometimes people will, they, they seem like they're, they're um, completely uh, flesh and blood when they're here. They leave footprints. They have babies, or at least they're seen carrying babies around. Um, they eat. They scare people. People get close up to them, see their fangs, and, and you know, they seem completely flesh and blood. But then you have other people who will see them sometimes morphing or seeming to half vanish or being visible altogether. Um, many times people will report emptying automatic clips into them at close range, and the bullets don't do anything to them. They just sort of wow. fall down and the creatures run off. I have a whole, a whole uh, chapter on that in my new book. And that's pretty prevalent with both with both of these. And also explains, um, according to the, native, the those people that I've interviewed, why you don't find the dead bodies because they go back if they know they are going to expire, they make it through to the other world again, or their friends somehow drag them there and get them there or bury them, you know, one or the other. Well, you know, you mentioned the new book, uh, Monsters Among Us, an exploration of otherworldly Bigfoots, Wolfmen, Portals, Phantoms, and Odd Phenomena, which is coming out on October 11th. But you also were talking, too, about the idea of these creatures being transdimensional. And you have a story in the new book about a 400-pound creature that actually emerged from a portal, and, and people actually saw this. Yeah, um, and you're probably talking about the, the, the chapter about Skinwalker Ranch. Yes, and and that's something that you know when I I worked on the the television program Ghost Stalkers as, as the researcher for that, mm-hmm. and they were very uh, very much looking for stories in which there are portals where you know ghosts could be coming in and out of. But I found that these portals often are more associated with these flesh and blood yes. monster creatures, like you're reporting. Yes, and the reason that I talked about um, that book by uh, George Knapp and uh, Calm Kelleher. Um, about Skinwalker Ranch was that for the past several years I've been assisting a southeastern Wisconsin property owner who has sort of a, a mini version. Trust me, it's not the full scope, not anything like that full scope of the the actual Skinwalker Ranch in, in Utah, but many of the same phenomena occurred. And we actually would, the, the, the owner had um, up to three different trail cams going at once and I always wanted to bring mine out there, but he, he he wanted these to be only his own photos. So we went with his three, and he had some some good uh, equipment. And um, we usually didn't catch anything, but at one point we had like a whole half hour series of this um, developing light form that was a dead ringer for what the original book would call the the orange light structures. It was this orange structure that formed in the tree line. And then at the end, there was this blobby black blurry thing that looked like it came out of it. And we've had um, lots of different weird footprints out there, large canine prints that are just the back, the hind feet. You don't see any. So apparently it's walking on its hind legs. We've had other ones that look sort of like hooves, except they're, they're, they're filled in U-shapes. They're, they're very odd. Um, you know, just all kinds of different prints, weird light formations. Um, sightings of the dog man. I've, and then, um, not, well, re- fairly recently in the past couple of years, we've started having, uh, sightings of, of a Bigfoot around his area too. Um, three different sightings of what I call the cinnamon colored or, or reddish colored Bigfoot by different people at different times that, that didn't know one another. Hmm. So, um, yeah, so it's, 
it does seem like there's something there that peop- that things are emerging from. Also, um, it, on this property, he would have something land out in the middle of a field and then walk off to the woods, you know, with no indication where it came from, or be toted out into the middle of a field. And then there were either two options, something dropped from the sky and picked it up, or whatever carried it out there was able to exactly match only the footsteps that it took straight backwards. And I'm told there are some animals that, that can do this, but not for the distance, I think, that this would have had to occur. And we have mutilations of uh, you know, deer carcasses and things like that. So it's just been, uh, but yet the cameras would never work when whatever was taking bait or um, doing these things was actually there. Because, see, uh, there's other reports of other, you know, portal sightings, and, and, of course, you cover more of these in the book. But when I was doing the research for Ghost Stalkers, for example, we we went and investigated uh, the Springfield Hospital in Sykesville, Maryland. And this is a place where they thought that there might have been a portal because, uh, you know, they had the spirit activity that was supposedly coming in and out of it. But I also tried to tie into it, and the producers ended up cutting it because they thought that it was too much of a stretch connection. Mm-hmm. I tried to connect it to the Sykesville monster sightings mm-hmm. and saying that maybe there's something that's been going on in this area for a long time, and it's kind of a doorway into something else where things go in and out. Right. Do you see around some of these portals where these physical creatures are seen, are there other types of phenomena reported? Oh, yeah. You know, you get UFOs, you get lights, you get all these different kinds of things. In fact, I had a, I experienced seeing some type of unknown um, sphere that was a light structure with um, the property owner and a colleague of mine. Um, it came across a field starting from the point where the mutilations and, and that sort of thing had taken place, came all the way across this hay field and stopped 30 feet from our car where we were sitting making observations. Um, about 30 feet up in the air, about 30 feet from the car, and uh, my colleague shined a flashlight on it before I could take a picture, unfortunately, and it, like, hesitated for a moment. We all had that that insane impression, and then it just sort of powered down the same way, um, you know, some of the, the newfangled um, light bulbs powered down. It, it's hard to describe it any other way, and we all... We all just yelled because there was no way that what we had seen was physically possible. That it just popped, you know, that it came across the field, was, you know, remained lit, and then when the flashlight hit it, it just waited a second and then it just popped away. It was just it, completely inexplicable. And it was coming from the exact area also where that one, um, what what looked like a portal. I won't say it is a portal because I don't have any way to know that. Sure. You know, to be totally honest. And it is sort of a speculative stretch, you know, and I go through that, you know, my own discomfort with even talking about something like a portal with this landowner. And the landowner, by the way, um, is a a former math teacher and and physics teacher from Chicago who has a brother who is a, a, a physicist, a much decorated physicist, something that he has some knowledge of. But the, the other thing is that, and, I, and I'm totally unequipped to really go into detail on this, but what I can say is, and, and this is, um, you know, not just me, it's borne out in, in many of the new um, news reports and, and books on this, is that our 
our top scientists, and these are just the ones we know about. There are probably people doing work that, um, you know, that hasn't even trickled back to the masses yet. But they are coming up with equations and formulas that, not, that, that predict that there are such things as other dimensions and that there are very most likely places where these dimensions will intersect or connect mm-hmm. or ev- and even um, com- can, can go back and forth. Now, what they've shown to be possible so far in that respect, we're talking about um, microparticles, you know, pieces of atoms, you know, the, the very, very tiny things. But um, there are others who speculate, well, if it can be shown that it's possible for these little, uh, you know, tiny microforms to go through, then, then maybe the macro forms, larger animals, we also will be shown, you know. And again, I, I think that science is still, we're probably just on the verge of really breaking into what all that means. But it is something that is being postulated and predicted by our best minds and highest uh, mathematical geniuses. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to argue with those guys that it's impossible because, you know, I'm sitting here in southern Wisconsin and I can't see a portal with my own eyes when they're showing that in formulas and equations that work, in, by the way, in every other way that, that they can prove them, they bear, they're, they're borne out. You know, it would, like, it, would be have, it would have to be like these things, these formulas and equations were perfect in every way except for this one inexplicable place where they predicted um, other worlds, other dimensions, and the possibility of connections between them. You know, and, and that doesn't make sense either. So um, I, I think that in, in that case, you can't say, well, it's total bunk to talk about portals because, um, you know, the, it, it may be possible. And, you know, I can I can buy into the concept of portals because I do believe in the idea that there could be multiple dimensions, multiple realities rubbing up against each other in certain mm-hmm. spots. And I can buy that. I, I can understand that concept. But what I start to, to worry, worry about is, you know, that's fine. You know, that being is going from dimension A coming into our dimension B and then going back to dimension A, fine. These stories, that, and you chronicle some of these as well, the idea that there's actually beings here in this dimension that can change who they are and shapeshift mm-hmm. and manipulate their physical appearance like that, that to me is something that I find extremely creepy because yeah. that could, you know, that lends itself to the idea that there really are monsters among us and they might even be closer than we think. Exactly. And, you know, of course, just the idea that there's something there shape-shifting and taking different forms and mimicking doesn't necessarily have to be from another world or realm. Um, some people have postulated that there are simply entities that are not in a form that's visible to uh, the light spectrum that human beings can perceive, that they're there, but they can also somehow interact with us or um, show their own intent to mimic a form that's already here, you know, and so you get these sort of phantom-like things, the phantoms to us, but but that's a thing that's already been here with us. Um, You know, see, this is a different thing than the idea that somebody's visiting us from another realm or, or dimension, that it's a natural part of, uh, you know, the, the earthscape. It's just not uh, normally perceived by us. That's just, that, that just kind of weirds me out to, to no end. And I know. <laughs> it's not that I like that. It's just that uh, this is um, an explanation. Some reach, I, I know um, 
Nick Redfern is another researcher who has brought this idea out, where there's there's almost sort of a, they'll call it a, a non-localized matrix, which means it it isn't necessarily stuck to any one, um, you know, point or place, but it's this sort of unseen matrix that can reform itself and, and take other forms and uh, show itself and, and interact in certain ways. I mean, maybe that does also explain the idea of, you know, like werewolves, where it's maybe it's not just that the person can only transform into a wolf, but that that just happens to be, you know, what's kind of in our mythology and in our mindset, so that is what they become. Right, you know, and then there's another whole thing with, um, you know, Native Americans have often have the belief of shapeshifters, and this is something that um, requires a lot of study and different things, and um, it's almost more of a projection of, say, some people might call it psychic energy, some people might call it an astral body, there are different terms, um, but that they believe, um, sort of like the Tibetan tulpas, that there can be thought forms that can be solidified so that other people can can see them. And, and that's another way of uh, coming up with sort of the same effect. Well, one of the stories and that's mentioned uh, in in the press materials for for the book is that there is actually a woman who transforms into a wolf like creature in front of a church congregation of two hundred people. This is something that happened that two hundred people actually witnessed um yeah they they did from what I understand from the main witnesses were a family of four that were sitting in the front row and it was kind of a u shaped formation, and they happened to have the best view of it. Um, and other people saw parts of it. Um, it didn't last. It lasted only for a few seconds until um, the creature was sort of taken down by the ushers who have, who were right nearby there. Um, but the, what they all saw was a woman who stood up and screamed. And then the next thing they knew, they were looking at this uh, tall, gray, furry creature. And um, it then was subdued and uh, they didn't they didn't see that again it, it didn't happen again and the church is no longer there this is one where um, you know I really hesitate I kind of wrestled even with putting this in the book and I met with the people face to face several times and inter- re-interviewed them and re-interviewed them checked out every detail and fact that they told me everything checked out they were impeccable witnesses just a nice pleasant middle aged couple he was a Vietnam veteran um, you know, they didn't want anything from it. They'd, they'd stayed quiet about it. This happened, you know, some time ago, and they had lived with it all this time, and they finally just felt like someone should know that these things were possible. But this was still something that happened, you know, in, in somewhat modern times. We're not talking yes. about something that happened 200 years ago. No, no, no. This was a couple of decades ago. Um, but still, you know, they, they, they felt... They felt very strongly that people should know these things are, are possible and that they exist. And, um, you know, they, they didn't know whatever happened to the woman or anything else like that. But And the actual building um, where that happened is, is no longer there on the property. But, uh, yeah, it was pretty shocking. It, it's a very shocking story, you know, and I thought about it. I, I prayed about it. I talked about it with my editor. And I finally decided, you know, just probably wasn't up to me to just edit this one out as long as everything checked out. And they even signed, you know, affidavits, uh, statements saying that to, you know, the best of their knowledge, this was true and factual. 
you know, so I had pretty much done everything I, I could do other than, um, you know, administer polygraph tests, which I just don't have thousands of dollars to right. to use. So uh, so it's in. It's in there. And it does, I mean, it fits so perfectly also with the theme of the book, um, you know, and, and I think we'll give some people a lot to chew on when they read it. No pun intended. No pun intended. No. <laughs> well, that's right. and and that's something that we should stress about the book Monsters Among Us. You know, you're not just taking legends and and lore and and, and no. urban legends and sharing them with people. I mean, these are things that you've researched, people that you've interviewed. I mean, this is as close as you can get to finding out the truth behind these stories. Well, that's what I always aim for, you know. And of of course, um, you know, I've kind of accepted that on this side of the veil. I may never learn the exact true answer but if you you know if you put enough facts out there and you might have noticed also the other thing that i'm doing with this book is i thought well um so often people who study different things in the paranormal will divide will divide ourselves up like i'm i'm a paranormalist i'm a cryptozoologist i'm a ghost hunter you know i don't bother i only hunt bigfoot i only hunt where we divide ourselves up, and so we're missing a lot of the commonalities between many of these phenomena. And also, um, you know, people always ask me about moon phases and things like that. So every time that I had the, the necessary information in a story to determine it, I included things like the moon phase, um, the solar the solar flare uh, activity at the time, um, whether uh, there were other um, associated phenomena like. Um, you know, lights or UFOs, things like that. And I think that's the kind of study that may start finally getting us somewhere as to seeing whether these these things are related or, um, you know, maybe there's some weird truth that nobody's even guessed at yet. When putting this all together, though, and, and looking at the, you know, the, the whole of its parts and looking at kind of the way it will be perceived by people. I mean, it's a lot of fantastical information to, yeah. to take into account, but when, I mean, do you, I'm assuming that you must agonize to some degree over, over tone and the way that you want to approach yeah. the way that you report this, or maybe it comes naturally because, you know, you've, you've been a journalist, but, you know, it, it means a lot when you can share these people's stories and do it in a way that doesn't discredit them in any way. And it's something that I find a lot of writers can't do, but there are quite a few good ones, uh, yourself included, who are able to do that. Thank you. Well, you know, that is something, I mean, if I think it's something, if I think a story is totally bogus, I don't see any point in inflicting that on people. You know, I'm only trying to get at true experiences. So, um, you know, I talk with people, and I did work for the newspaper for 10 years, interviewing, you know, maybe one to four people a week on any large number of topics, you kind of get a feel for talking to people after a while. Mm -hmm. And I always have a great respect for those witnesses that, you know, so, so often you can just see that they're struggling to come forward. They're struggling to tell you about it. Sometimes the stories come and drip. They'll, they'll tell you just so much and then say, well, there was this other thing, but I know you're going to think I'm completely crazy. And then it turns out to be something that I often hear from other people, you know, and, and I'm able to reassure them that, nope, heard this one many, many times before. You know, because the things, the, the stories seem fantastical to the witnesses themselves. Oftentimes, I think that they live in denial of what they experienced for many years until they do hear it from someone else. And then they're finally able to go, aha, there is someone else. You know, now maybe I can tell it and 
someone else will um, get that same feeling of relief from my story. So, you know, that's where I'm going. But, yeah, I, I do agonize over um, many stories as to, and, and try and decide whether they belong in the book. And I'm not trying just to tell story, it, scary stories. I'm trying to put together something that will at least, if, if not be totally illuminating, at least provide possibilities for people to think of and places for the mind to go. And I'm always conscious of the fact that somebody much brighter than me might come across this and go, oh, yes, I see the light, you know, I understand what it all is, and come up with the final solution. You know, it, it's probably not going to be me, and I, I fully accept that. Because, I mean, you look back at some of the, you know, the writers that originally brought a lot of this uh, subject to the forefront. You know, you look at Sanderson, you look at Keel. They kind of blurred the lines to some degree as to, you know, what's factual research and what's actually just legend. And, and some of it might even have been kind of just their own little, you know, throwing their own little storytelling into it. And then a guy like Nick Redfern, who does the same type of thing, but, you know, lets you know when he's putting his tongue in his right. cheek. And yeah. it's it's kind of a hard field to keep that balance in. but. There are a number who have been able to do that. Yeah, yeah. And, well, you know, the other the other side of the coin is if you wish to have the book published so that people can um, learn about this information and, um, you know, not be bored stiff, but you do have to write a book that will be readable and that people will enjoy reading and, mm-hmm. and that maybe will, you know, tease the mind a bit and, and bring people to uh, consider things they had never considered before. So, you know, there is that aspect of it, too. If you if you want it published, it has to be readable. And um, some of these things are, are tools toward that end. But um, I'm always really careful if I know something has, if I, if I know there's a legend, if there's something that I can see that it looks to me like um, this was just something that, that came from a misinterpretation, um, you know, not on any fault of the witnesses, but... Um, just something that that we can see probably wasn't a, a paranormal thing. I'll make sure that that's clear as best I can. But I mean, there is some degree of, of marketing in, involved in as well. You know, the, there's a reason why the book is sure. called Monsters Among Us, and you know, not undiscovered mammals within close proximity to humans. Yes, that that that, that was not my um, choice for a title at all. But that was the title that uh, you know the publisher felt would work best with with their marketing campaign. And I don't blame them because they put a lot of money into putting this together and they have to be able to sell the book. And it's in my contract that they get last word on the title. So it was their title, not mine, and and I think it's worked out well. I mean, but that's fine because you can still capture people's imaginations with that. Right. And then it, it can almost be more powerful because they look at it as being like, oh, here's a book of a bunch of monsters citing stories. This should be a lot of fun. Then they open up the book and they start reading it and they say, wait a minute, this isn't a storybook. This stuff is real. Right, right. Yeah, and I get that a lot from people, just about exactly as you just said it. Is is there any story in, in, in any particular encounter that you've uh, heard and, and maybe researched or maybe decided not to research because has anything actually scared you? Oh, sure. Yeah, there have been some things. Um, you know, when we talk about the things that are conjured or, um, you know, thought forms or people who have rituals, those sorts of things, I don't want to go there. If it's... It, it's I, I accept the possible um, the possibility of it because um, there are just a lot of things in the universe that um, I don't claim to understand. And because this is something that goes back to every human culture, you know, as far back as we know, we see, um, you know, ancient pictographs of 
what are obviously uh, shamans wearing wolf suits or bird suit, you know, part birds, whatever. You can you can look and see this idea of humans transforming into animals. And I don't know for if for sure if it's real or not, but I do know that a lot of them have really repulsive things that go along with um, enacting these sorts of activities. And that's just the point where I draw the line, and I don't want I for someone else to explore, not me. It's just just not my thing. So those kinds of things, I just stop. Well, if anybody has any questions for our guest, Linda Godfrey, you can call in 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420, or you can type them into the chat room on our YouTube channel uh, and at SpookySouthCoast.com, or you can also send them to us on Twitter, either directly at SpookySC or by using the hashtag SpookyLive. I do find that when, you know, you kind of get people that are in one camp or another for a lot of different types of phenomena that we talk about here on the show. You know, they're either a believer or a non-believer. And, and I think that with these creatures, there's, a, there's so many different layers to them that people are willing to believe up to a certain point, or maybe they're willing to believe one creature over another. Does it really make any sense for somebody to say, you know, I don't believe in the beasts of Bray Road, I don't believe in werewolves, I don't believe in that, but I do believe in Bigfoot. Does that make sense based on kind of what we know? Or should you be able to be open to one if you're open, uh, you know, if you're open to one, be open well, I, you know, I think that the way that you put it in that there are layers to them is, is brilliant because that really explains it. It, it really describes it very well. Um, you know, there just seem to be layers in these creatures ranging from fresh, flesh and blood to full-out invisible disappearing things. And um, I think, you know, I, I, I don't blame people for saying, well, I can believe in Bigfoot but not the wolf manor or vice versa, because I think everybody has their own built-in um, limits and their their own um, psyches that can tolerate one thing or another. Maybe they have religious reasons. Maybe it's something that, you know, they heard about from a child. And, you know, we all have our, our biases and, and, and beliefs that predispose us to accept things or not accept things. So... Um, you know, I think that's fairly natural for humans to do so, and it never offends me if people say, "Well, I don't, I don't believe that." You know, there are these these wolf creatures, because I know a lot of other people have seen them. I just don't know what they are. See, I like to tell people tell me all the time because I've written about ghosts, and they say, oh, "I don't even believe in ghosts." So, you know, I'll be talking about one of my books, and they'll say, "Well, I don't believe that ghosts exist." I always tell them, "But the book does exist, so buy it anyway." <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can at least prove that that's real. That's a great answer. And yeah. so is my need to get your nineteen ninety nine. Uh, but the the other thing too about about monsters, and we'll use that in quotation marks, but about these cryptid creatures is that right now they're kind of the hot commodity in the paranormal pop culture world. You know, there's TV shows that are coming out about it, documentaries. I mean. It seems like it was only a matter of time because we've gone through the different aspects of paranormal phenomena, but now it, it is the monster's time to shine in the public consciousness. Yeah, there's been sort of an explosion, you know, like I'd say in the last five years or so. And um, for the first, you know, for the ten years I worked at the newspaper and the few years after that until I started, you know, really writing the books, um, I really felt like a lone ranger a lot of the time. I mean... You know, Nick Redfern was out there, and there were some other people 
that were documenting things. But by and large, um, most of the Bigfoot investigators were saying, oh, there's no such thing as these dogmen. There's snout-nosed Bigfoot, which I thought was kind of crazy because anybody who got a good look at either one would definitely see either a primate structure or a canine structure, and they're very, very different from foot structure all the way up through the head, the features of, of all the features of the head, you know. So that seemed a little strange to me. But, uh, you know, I don't know if it was the Monster Quest show that I, I think really got brought a lot of this out and interested a lot of people and drew a lot of people who were attracted to the scientific testing aspect of that show, and it made them more willing to look at these things and consider it. But, um, yeah, the last, you know, four or five years, and, and even more so the last couple of years, it's it does seem to be just really exploding. And I I don't know if it's just, uh, you know, something that's going to fade away after a little bit and they'll go on to something new. But, um, it, yeah, it really is a lot more out there in the public eye than it, than it was for a long time and, and a lot more accepted by um, investigators as well. Well, I, I mean, I do think Monster Quest uh, did kind of set the tone for it yeah. to some degree, and and I proudly I wear it as a badge of uh, of you know honor that I was on the lowest rated episode of Monster Quest <laughs> of all time. Which one was that? Uh, there was the episode about ghosts. Oh. It was actually the least the, the the lowest rated episode, but that just goes to show that there is a division yeah. uh and, and a lot of that for the people who do research these creatures to say you know hey wait a minute i'm investigating a real creature that we just haven't been able to prove yet you're out there you know talking to yourself in the dark yeah and and it's also you know the, the ghosts really weren't in the the true wheelhouse of that um that show either the the monster quest because right. Right, and then the, the name of it monster quest you know you're questing for a monster and I don't think most people think of ghosts as monsters necessarily. I think it was more just, you know, they they said, let's get our own little... Because for the longest time, the History Channel didn't want to have any of this, you know, paranormal stuff on there. They didn't want that woo-woo stuff. But this was kind of the chance to to touch upon that, but within the same structure. Uh, It was a great show. I miss it. And then I'm sure that, you know, that's something that will, you know, they still rerun it now, but it'll continue to live on in perpetuity, mm-hmm. you know, sharing these legends with future future viewers. Uh, there is a question that's come up in the chat room as well uh, that, well, I'm going to take these separately here, but uh, Raven was mentioning that uh, there are kind of upright canine figures that are reported in other cultures as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, he, uh, she mentioned the Asian story, or he or she, I'm not sure if Raven's a man or a woman, but mentioned the uh, Asian fox wife and mm-hmm. also mentioning the, uh, or Chris mentioned the Egyptian gods too as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, as I said we, earlier, we, we go back all the way, um, you know, the Egyptians have Anubis, which was the, the jackal-headed god, and um, a couple of other similar ones. You, you go back in the Sumerians. Um, they're, they're known through all, yeah, the Japanese have, have the, uh, Kitsune, which is the, the, uh, fox shapeshifter. Um, Native Americans have all kinds of, they're bear walkers still, uh, still, one, one bear walker story quite contemporary made the news in Michigan about 10 years ago where, um, a university was going to, do something with some something that was discovered to be sacred, and some bear walkers actually threatened the university with a curse if they continued in what they were doing. 
So, I mean, it's, it goes way back to antiquity. And, uh, yeah, the upright canines are well represented. You know, there were, when Marco Polo went out, he reported seeing um, canine, upright canine or dog people. Um, many people in China, there's a whole region in China where the people believe they were um, descended from dog people. So it's a very pervasive image and cultural tradition all around the world. And that, again, makes you think that there's just something really basic to um, maybe an ally of some sort between this idea and, and humanity. It it's, uh, makes it all the more... And again, one of those layers that you mentioned. One of the... Uh other questions that popped up as well was the question about when these type of creatures are reported on television or any type of phenomena is reported on television, sightings of that go up. So obviously, you know, these, these creatures are being pe- featured prominently on, on TV shows now, so more people are having encounters. But that can be kind of a, a, a two-sided coin, right? That sometimes right. it's that people want the attention, but sometimes it's that people just feel like now it you know, the American consciousness is more accepting of it. Yeah, well, for for one thing, people see that there's a place to report it, um, you know, and, and they'll seek out someone to talk to, whereas they might have just stayed quiet their whole life beforehand. And also people having uh, more awareness, now when they're out in the woods, they'll see something that before they might have blinked away and said, no, I didn't see that. You know, that wasn't real they will say, oh, yeah, that's what's on that show. I, I just saw it. You know, so it's, I think it's a combination of awareness and um, seeing other people come forward that gives them the nerve to also come forward and risk being ridiculed. Because e- even with the growing awareness and the TV shows, people are still made fun of, you know, and it's still uh, a lot of people tell me they, they, they told one person, like their mother or their husband or their, their wife, were ridiculed and then never brought it up again. Yeah, I mean that. I mean that seems to be more often than not. It's just yeah. a matter of of finally just feeling comfort with it. Exactly. Speaking exactly. of comfort, uh, the final question I have for you tonight is: Now, I'm, I'm assuming that you have yet to come face to face with one of these creatures, uh, but let's just say you know Linda Godfrey's taking a walk down a, a wooded path in, in southern Wisconsin, you come face-to-face with one of these creatures that you've reported on. How would you react to that? <laughs> well, are you speaking strictly about the, the dogmen or wolfmen? I would, or, I'd, I'd say probably that, because that seems to be the, the thing that has uh, held your attention all these years. Yeah, well, I have, had, I have had encounters with Bigfoot. Oh, you have? And Yeah, and you can read about a lot of those in... in uh, my blog at lindagodfrey.com, and I also have told about them in, in uh, a couple of my books. But um, I did see the, the back of some sort of mammal that was seven foot tall, and um, it was covered with gray fur, and I saw the spine as it just ran on the outside of a spotlight on a lonely dirt road deep in the heart of the Manistee Forest in Michigan. I was there with a History Channel cameraman, who happened to turn his camera the other way right at that moment. But one of the witnesses and I both saw it run across the road and blot out a seven-foot-tall reflective road sign as it went. So I may have seen the back of a dogman, and they had reported seeing a tall gray dogman at that spot. That's why we were there. So it, it's possible that I did see it. And 
Um, it wasn't my choice, but the witness immediately wanted to leave. They wouldn't. They refused to remain there any longer. So, so we did have to leave. But, but well, um, uh, I'm just going to put this out there. That might have been one of the weeks that our usual co-host Matt Moniz wasn't in the studio. So you might have just seen him running around without a shirt on. <laughs> He's not seven feet tall, but he could look that way if the light shines on him just right. <laughs> Well, okay. thank you very much, Linda, for joining us, and uh, we look forward to picking up Monsters Among Us when it comes out on October 11th, and of course, we also look forward to whatever adventures you have coming your way further down the road that I'm sure you will come back and share with us. I would love to, and thank you so much for having me. You asked wonderful questions, oh, and I had you. a great time. And uh, we will talk again real soon. You take care. You too. Thank you. That is Linda Godfrey. Check out her website, lindagodfrey.com. It's linked up on SpookySouthCoast.com as well. So you can check it out. If you want to pick up a copy of the book, you can pre-order it, and uh, it'll be coming out in just the next couple of weeks. So what do you think, Matt? I mean, I know that you're somebody who, you know, you you were the, the cryptid guy on the show when we first started. Right. That was kind of what drew your interest the most out of anything. Um, you know, it, it certainly sounds like this book is full of... Uh, very interesting accounts, and as you heard Linda say, you know that she meticulously researched and, and talked to people and and put the work in to make sure that they weren't just stories. Right. It's, I mean, it's uh, it's it's kind of um, like the the cryptozoology, I guess, in the paranormal world world, um, you have the potential to have physical evidence mm-hmm. as opposed to like um, with a ghost or other worldly otherworldly phenomenon you have it's it's very abstract but like with the cryptids there's the potential to have some sort of like carcass or bones or fur poop hey, what have you whatever it takes it's, it seems like there's more uh more of a more evidence potential evidence out there and i think that's that's what grabs a lot of people well, and and certainly uh, it's not going away anytime soon. It's at the height of its popularity probably right now. And we'll have more shows where we discuss those creatures uh, coming up in the future. But next week we'll be talking with Scott Bruce. He's the author of the new book, The Penguin Book of the Undead. And uh, I have a copy of this book already. I, Chris got me an advanced copy. And I've been reading through it. And i got to tell you, this this is unlike anything that you've ever read when it comes to compiling ghost reports and ghost stories, because this is going back to, in antiquity, some of these ghost stories. This is the stuff that I like. This is the stuff that I geek out over. Some of these earliest reports of ghostly encounters. And it strips away a lot of the folklore aspect of it that we have now and kind of gives us the stories as they relate to the people and the culture that we're reporting them of the time. And you can take a step back and kind of see the forest for the trees. So I'm really excited about this conversation next week. Again, Scott Bruce and the Penguin Book of the Undead. He'll be joining us next Saturday night here on Spooky South Coast. If you want to get in touch with us at any point during the week, spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com is our email address. Uh, you can also get us individually, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com, Matt at SpookySouthCoast.com, etc. Uh, but you can also follow us on Twitter as well, at SpookySC. You can follow us on Instagram, at Spooky underscore South Coast. Like us on Facebook. All these different ways to keep in touch with us on social media. And also, SpookySouthCoast.com is the website where you can get your tickets right now for the Fort Tabor, Fort Rodman investigation coming up on October 29th, and we'll, where we will be announcing our next event once everything comes all together in the next couple of days. So, and I'm... 
we're into it now, Matt. We're into Paranormal Christmas. So we are. it's only going to get creepier. It's only going to get spookier. October 1st, our annual Bridgewater Triangle Investigation Show. It's happening on National Ghost Hunting Day, which is a new thing. So October 1st, teams get in touch with us. Let us know where you want to go. So until next week, stay spooktacular.